0: Prove the News podcast for Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. I'm Eric Steiner
1: with a look at today's top stories. The European Union finds META a record $1.3 billion over data privacy. The ruling conservatives win the Greek election. China bans U.S. chipmaker Micron from infrastructure projects.
0: The FBI is accused of misusing a database for January 6th and BLM protests.
1: An Indian court issues the BBC
0: with a summons
1: over its Modi documentary.
0: Russia warns the US not to allow Ukraine
1: to attack Crimea. A soccer stadium stampede in El Salvador leaves at least 12 dead.
0: SpaceX sends Saudi astronauts to the International Space Station. Trump was reportedly warned about keeping classified documents. And the U.N. says climate change has caused 2 million deaths in the last 50 years.
1: In our top story, the EU finds Meta 1.3 billion over data privacy. And here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, The Guardian, Washington Post, CNN, and Reuters. On Monday, the European Union fined Meta's Facebook a record 1.2 billion euros for systematic, repetitive, and continuous transfers of users' data from Europe to the United States. The Irish Data Protection Commission, which acts on behalf of the EU, alleges Meta infringed on the EU's General Data Protection Regulation by failing to address the risks to the fundamental rights and freedoms of data subjects, identified in the EU's Court of Justice. The Commission ordered Meta to put in place measures to halt all future transfers of personal data from the EU to the U.S. in the next five months and to stop the quote unlawful processing including storage in the U.S. of personal data of EU-EEA, European Economic Area, users transferred in violation of the regulation within six months. Meta, which has its European headquarters in Dublin, said it would appeal the flawed and unjustified decision noting the issue originating from a conflict of law between U.S. rules on access to data and the EU users' privacy rights. Meta's $1.3 fine is a new record for tech companies in Europe, following the previous record of 746 million euros or over $805 million levied against Amazon in 2021. This comes after the Irish watchdog organization Find Meta owned WhatsApp 5.5 million euros or 5.95 million dollars for breaching the bloc's privacy laws and directed it to bring its processing operations into compliance within the next six months
0: all right those were our facts let's start our narrative spins with the pro-establishment narrative from the bbc this fine is unfair as it singles out facebook for using the exact legal mechanism thousands of u.s companies follow to provide services in europe Moreover, it sets a dangerous precedent for the countless tech firms transferring data between the EU and the U.S. The establishment
1: critical narrative comes from common dreams. As U.S. intelligence agencies, through their close relationship with big tech, have used data transfers to collect European citizens' information, this is a big win for privacy. Meta should also count its blessings, as it's been breaking European law for 10 years and could have been fined the
0: maximum of $4 billion. And narrative C comes from Wired magazine. This is another example of policing the internet cloaked as providing data safety for European users. Though it strikes a blow against surveillance capitalism, which has become Silicon Valley's default model for capital accumulation, the fine is inconsequential for Europeans' rights, as meta will likely hold on to data it has moved unlawfully. Our first nerd
1: narrative of today's podcast coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. There's a 50% chance that the U.S. will break up meta-platforms no earlier than January of
0: the year 2030. This kind of reminds me of uh, what happened in the show Breaking Bad. So the whole plot is this guy needs to make money for various reasons. And they end up through nefarious means making so much money that it's just a huge cube of money they have to keep in a storage container. They can't launder it fast enough. They can't spend it because it's illegal. And they actually literally have to spray it for bugs and pests. It's just (laughs) they made too much money. (laughs) In this case, these data companies, Meta among them and all the other ones, we want to capture as much people's data as we can. Now we have too much. Now right. <laughs> so, yeah, We got we to spray it for past. Right. You yeah, got called Terminix. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. News from Greek elections. The ruling conservatives win a majority. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, BBC News, the Athens Macedonian News Agency, CNN, Euractiv, and Politico. Greek Prime Minister Kairakos Mitsotakis's center-right New Democracy Party won 40.8% of the vote in Sunday's elections, but fell short of the absolute majority needed to form a government on its own. With nearly all the votes counted, Mitsotakis' party is 20 points ahead of Alexis Tsipras's center-left Syriza party, which received about 20% of the vote. The socialist PASOK party came in third with 11.5% of the vote. Referring to the election results as a political earthquake, Mitsotakis said his party had received the mandate to govern independently and strongly, and indicated he would seek a runoff election to prevent a coalition government. The elections were held under a new proportional representation system, in which a party must receive about 45% of the vote to win the election outright. With Mitsotakis on Monday rejecting coalition negotiations, a caretaker government will call fresh elections in which the winning party must receive at least 37% of the vote. Meanwhile, calling the results extremely negative, Cyprus said that Syriza, which reportedly lost 700,000 voters to other leftist parties since the 2019 elections, will make the necessary changes to win the next crucial and final electoral battle. Greece's national debt stands at around 170% of its gross domestic product, and the country is one of the highest rates of people at risk of poverty with real income decreasing by 7.4% in 2022 due to high inflation.
1: Scott, thanks for those facts. Our first spin is Narrative A, and it's coming from Wall Street Journal. New democracy's resounding victory indicates that Greeks want Mitsotakis to continue on the path of economic recovery, reforms, and stability. After the country's severe debt crisis in the 2010s, economic growth has resumed, and exports and the investment climate have improved Thanks to New Democracies initiatives, aided by EU funds and a business-friendly government that has restored investor confidence, Greece is on the right
0: track. And Narrative B comes from The Guardian. Mitsotakis won because Syriza weakened the left by bowing to the demands of big money and the EU Troika while rejecting to form a leftist alliance and providing a convincing alternative for the country. As Greece is a prime example of how pleasing investors and the EU financial apparatus through reforms do not translate into better living conditions for ordinary citizens, its opposition parties must wake up, collaborate, and offer a solution to fix the nation's economic, social, and environmental woes if they dream of getting anywhere close to winning office.
1: In our next story, China bans U.S. chipmaker Micron from infrastructure projects. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, France 24, and CNN. A PRC regulator has announced that U.S. chip manufacturer Micron has been banned from use in domestic infrastructure projects. In a statement, the Cyberspace Administration of China announced that Micron products, which include semiconductors and solid-state hard drives, pose serious network security risks, and that operators of critical information infrastructure should stop purchasing from Micron. Micron, the first U.S. chipmaker to face Chinese restrictions, said that it is continuing to engage in discussions with Chinese authorities. This move comes after the U.S. enacted a series of export controls to stop the use of American components in the Chinese defense industry. Around 10% of Micron's $30.8 billion revenue in 2022 came from China, mainly from sales to manufacturers. It is unclear if the ban will affect that revenue. The U.S. Department of Commerce has stated that the Cyberspace Administration of China accusations have no basis in fact. Chinese chipmakers saw their shares rise in light of the news as the PRC looks to boost its domestic semiconductor industry. In 2021, China imported $430 billion in semiconductors, with the global market forecasted to reach $1 trillion
0: by the year 2030. Thanks for that rundown, Eric. We have an anti-China narrative from War on the Rocks. China lacks the domestic capacity to produce high-tech chips for its military. Beijing is further isolating itself from the global semiconductor industry by lashing out at one of America's biggest chip makers. Despite the massive cash flows into the industry, there is little evidence of a worthy payoff due to scientific and institutional constraints. This move against Micron is a nationalistic blunder that will harm the country in the long run.
1: The pro-China narrative comes from Global Times. The Micron case is an isolated incident that will not affect China's willingness to do business with the world or its advanced technology industries. Micron failed a routine national security review, as Beijing seeks to have some of the most secure cyber infrastructures in the world. China welcomes businesses in all industries, provided they comply with China's prudent regulations.
0: I was reading an article about uh global microchip situation and the advancements in microchips come so fast that if you're behind in any way, there's no way to catch up basically. And they were talking about how, you know, China is modestly behind countries like Korea and the United States and some other Western countries. There's no way to catch up. They're going to keep getting better, but then so will everybody else even faster. So oh, yeah. it's, it's really, really interesting. <clears throat> A report claims the FBI misused its database for January 6th and racial protests. Here are the facts as agreed upon by El Pais, Forbes, Al Jazeera, and CNN. According to an opinion from the U.S. Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or FISA, which oversees U.S. spy agencies, the FBI improperly searched an intelligence database for information on suspects in the January 6, 2021 riots and those arrested during the 2020 George Floyd protests. The court found that the FBI used the Special Intelligence Database, launched after the 9-11 attacks, and maintained under Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, to conduct over 300,000 alleged abuses between 2020 and early 2021. The report also claimed the FBI searched 133 identifiers of people in connection with civil unrest and protests, around the same time as Black Lives Matter protests. 23,000 people believed to be involved in the January 6th Capitol riot, and over 19,000 donors to a congressional campaign. It further alleged the FBI violated its own standards requiring that any search using the database has a foreign intelligence purpose or is aimed at finding evidence of a crime. Claiming it ran 13 queries of suspected Capitol rioters in a search the Justice Department later found didn't meet either criterion. Regarding the unnamed congressional campaign, the court found that of the 19,000 campaign donors queried in the database, only eight identifiers had sufficient ties to foreign influence activities to comply with the querying standard. Section 702, from which a significant portion of President Biden's daily intelligent brief comes, is set to expire at the end of the year unless Congress renews it. Thank you, Scott, for those
1: facts. Our first spin is an establishment critical narrative coming from Town Hall. The FBI hasn't followed its own ethical guidelines for a long time, going at least as far back as 2016 when it ordered the illegitimate FISA warrant to wiretap the Trump campaign. The agency that's supposed to protect Americans instead spied on hundreds of thousands of them. And that's just regarding the two protest movements. As the law's renewal date nears closer, these abhorrent abuses of power will be on the minds of
0: both parties in Congress. And cross that with this pro-establishment narrative from PBS NewsHour. While there are certainly flaws in Section 702 that need correcting, America shouldn't forget that FISA searches have stopped ransomware and cyber attacks, helped combat aggression from China, and even aided in the drone strike on Al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zwahiri last summer. The brave members of U.S. intelligence agencies are constantly working to improve their analytical skills and ethical standards, but they shouldn't be stripped of this important tool due to a few mistakes. Scott, do you have, you still have your monthly subscription to the
1: FISA search engine?
0: Yeah. I mean, I I just keep it. The thing is I I got it such a deal. I'm grandfathered in at nine 99 a month. So I don't don't want to lose that deal. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't blame you. So, you know, over the long run, (laughs) it'll pay for itself. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. You're such a Snoopy kind of guy. (laughs) You (laughs) like to snoop around a lot. Yeah. Well,
0: (laughs) you never know. You never know. You never
1: know. In our next story, an Indian court issues the BBC with a summons over its Modi documentary. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Reuters, South China Morning Post, Deadline, and Al Jazeera. As part of an ongoing defamation case over a documentary created by the BBC about Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, the broadcaster has received a summons from Delhi's high court. The suit alleges that the documentary, which critiqued Modi's leadership during the 2002 Gujarat riots, maliciously defamed India. A BBC spokesperson acknowledged that the broadcaster was, quote, aware of the court proceedings, and they added that commenting on developments would be inappropriate at this stage. Aside from criticism in India suggesting the program, titled India, the Modi question, undermined the reputation of the country, its judiciary, and the prime minister, BBC offices in New Delhi and Mumbai also faced an inspection by Indian tax officials in February. Despite the documentary being banned in India, there are reports that it's being watched widely among the population. The BBC has previously defended its coverage, which focuses on Modi's management of the riots in the Indian state of Gujarat, which occurred when he was chief minister of the region, asserting that it does not have an agenda in the country. According to Siddharth Sharma, an advocate for the non-profit group Justice on Trial, who filed the defamation suit, the summons issued to the BBC comes as the next hearing is set for September 23rd. Modi has consistently denied that his response to the riots in Gujarat was inadequate, in which at least 1,000 people died, most of whom were Muslims.
0: All right, thanks for that update, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from The Spectator. Modi's relentless suppression of dissent is now impacting press freedom, as the world's largest democracy attempts to censor the investigation of independent journalists. It's evident that the Prime Minister is leading the BJP in failing to condone attacks on Muslims throughout the predominantly Hindu nation of India. The global publicity Modi has generated with this vindictive response may well pose more problems for his reputation than it solves.
1: The establishment critical narrative comes from Indian Express. Modi is an outstandingly poor media manager, and his response to this BBC fiasco proves it. The age of modern media makes it possible to ban anything, so by attempting to suppress it, the Prime Minister is catapulting the profile of this documentary. Rather than banning it, the Indian government should be transparent about this documentary is a total fabrication masquerading as journalism.
0: And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculous that says there's a 53% chance there will be a non-BJP Prime Minister of India, before 2030. Russia warns the U.S. over Ukrainian attacks on Crimea. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Guardian, CNN, TASS, and Reuters. Anatoly Antonov, Russia's ambassador to the U.S., has warned America against permitting Ukraine to strike Crimea, the Black Sea Peninsula annexed by Russia in 2014. Antonov's warning came on the back of America's approval of a joint international effort to train Ukrainian pilots to fly F-16 and other fighter jets. Once such jets are in the hands of Ukrainian forces, they would deeply enhance and extend Kyiv's strike capabilities. The warning also came following comments from U.S. President Joe Biden's national security adviser Jake Sullivan, who told CNN over the weekend, we have not placed limitations on Ukraine being able to strike on its territory within its internationally recognized borders. What we have said is that we will not enable Ukraine, with U.S. systems, Western systems, to attack Russia, and we believe Crimea is Ukraine. In response, Antonov said that Russia views strikes on Crimea as an attack on any other region of the Russian Federation, and called on the U.S. to consider the ramifications if such an assault on Crimea is permitted. Antonov added that it was clear to Russia that Ukraine lacks the capabilities to fly F-16 fighter jets without the assistance of foreign pilots and maintenance crews, hence making NATO countries culpable in Russia's eyes if any such attacks were to take place. Despite the reference to more direct NATO involvement, senior Russian diplomats also emphasized that the provision of F-16s would not undermine Moscow's military goals. On Monday, Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov stated that such a transfer would be completely useless and meaningless in altering the course of the special military operation. Scott, thank you for
1: those facts. Narrative A comes from the Center of European Policy Analysis. Russia's unlawful invasion of Ukraine did not start in February 22, but in 2014, when it illegally annexed the peninsula of Crimea. What started in that Ukrainian territory should end there. Kyiv has every right to try and regain the peninsula within its internationally recognized borders. And
0: narrative B comes from the Hill. While Ukraine may have a legal and moral case for attempting to retake Crimea, strategically and politically, it's not a good idea. Following a year of war, Ukraine's forces are already heavily degraded, and they may become too thinly stretched in attempting to take the peninsula. That has been heavily fortified since being taken by russia nearly a decade ago
1: the pro-russian narrative comes from tass after the coup in ukraine in 2014 protests against the putsch erupted in crimea and its residents overwhelmingly voted to reunify with russia through a referendum crimea is legally part of the russian federation and any attacks on it should be treated as attacks
0: on russian sovereignty And we also have a nerd narrative on this story. It says there's just a 1% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, that's Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea, as independent before the year 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. This war just seems really complicated in that some of the lines are blurred. Right. If, if we all agree not to attack certain countries, that's one thing. But if we can't agree where the lines are, then that's yeah. a whole other thing. And you don't know who you're going to be offending with what you're doing. And it's exactly. To, it doesn't seem like it's going to end well. I don't think it's going to. Uh-oh.
1: Tragedy in El Salvador as a soccer stadium stampede leaves at least 12 dead. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Al Jazeera, CNN new york times bbc news and daily mail at least a dozen people were killed and hundreds injured in a stampede at monumental stadium in el salvador on saturday where soccer clubs alianza and FAS were playing a national league quarterfinal game national civil police director mauricio arianza detailed on sunday that nine of the confirmed casualties died in the stadium while the remaining fatal victims died in different hospitals Some 90 people, including minors, were transferred to local hospitals to receive medical attention, with Health Minister Francisco Alabi adding that most of those hospitalized patients are in stable condition. While it is unclear what caused the rush, a live stream of the game posted on YouTube showed the chaos when commentators reported commotion in the stands before fans stepped onto the field and the game was suspended. President Nayib Bukele called the incident unprecedented and vowed to launch a comprehensive probe into why the stampede happened. He stated that he will not refrain from investigating teams, managers, stadium officials, the league, and the federation to hold the culprits accountable. Last year, a deadly stampede killed 135 spectators at a soccer stadium in Indonesia's East Java, as many were crushed while the crowd fled for exits as police fired tear gas into the crowd.
0: Alright, those were our facts. Let's start our narrative spins. Marca brings us Narrative A. The home team Alianza, fraudsters, and the police are the main culprits for this tragic outcome in the latest game of El Salvador's fiercest soccer rivalry. Tickets were irresponsibly oversold and counterfeited, prompting reportedly 8,000 people to gather outside the venue and force their way in. Given the importance of this game, such problems should have been anticipated and the police presence should have been increased
1: narrative b comes from the telegraph this disaster stems directly from failures in the stadium's internet networks as a large number of supporters gathered outside the venue which prompted some fans to be blocked due to a malfunctioning qr code system on one of the gates it's the stadium management that is ultimately responsible for this tragedy
0: I'll tell you what, I'm not joking around here. I used to work in stadium and ticket operations for sports teams, and this is the nightmare. You know, it, the system goes down. People want to go in. It's, an, it's a hugely sold game. If everyone outside decides they want to come in, there's nothing you can do. This is what can happen. You got to have your ducks in a row, and this is bad. Crowd control <laughs> is a scary thing, that's for sure. And And you're asking people, come here, gather, and be rowdy. SpaceX sends Saudi astronauts to the International Space Station. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, GeekWire, NBC, NPR Online News, and fizz.org. The second-ever private mission to the International Space Station, or ISS, took off aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket from the Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida, on Sunday. Aboard the mission from U.S. firm Axiom Space was Saudi Arabia's first two astronauts to travel to an orbital laboratory. Rayana Barnawi, a breast cancer researcher, and fighter pilot Ali Alkarni. This team also includes former NASA astronaut Peggy Whitson and John Schaffner, a businessman from Tennessee who is serving as the pilot. They were planned to reach the ISS Monday morning and return a week later, landing off the coast of Florida. While at the ISS, the group will conduct about 20 experiments, including Studying the behavior of stem cells in zero gravity. They will also join seven others already aboard the station three Russians, three Americans, and an Emirati astronaut, Sultan al Nayyadi. Other experiments focus on DNA inspired therapeutics, tissue regeneration in zero gravity, stem cell aging, and cloud seeding in microgravity, as well as testing a new skin suit that could help future astronauts stay fit in low gravity environments. Barnawi, now the first Saudi woman to make it to space, and al are both not the first from their nation to travel to space. They follow a Saudi prince who launched aboard the shuttle Discovery in 1985. While Axiom won't say how much the crew is paying to participate in the private flight, they previously cited a ticket price of $55 million each, which will give them access to most of the station as they conduct experiments, photograph Earth, and chat with schoolchildren back home.
1: Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Wired is giving us the first spin, it's Narrative A. This is the beginning of not only privatized space tourism, but the creation of space stations other than the ISS. Axiom plans to connect its own modules to the ISS by 2025, and then detach them to create a completely separate outer space laboratory. This flight has also shown the potential for space exploration companies to bring countries together and provide access to space travel to previously excluded groups.
0: Narrative B comes from CNN. Space tourism is a rich man's game and it will remain that way for a long time. Even the shorter and much quicker trips like Virgin Galactic owner Richard Branson's flight into orbit cost $250,000. As for spending time on the ISS, that has and will continue to cost tens of millions of dollars. Space Ventures continue to be a pet project of the wealthy. Do you have any desire to go to space, Eric? I mean, maybe if I had the money for it. I'm just going to have to live vicariously (laughs) through you, Scott. Mm. Yeah, I just got to edit a lot more podcasts to make it up into space. Yeah.
1: (laughs) According to a report, Trump was warned about keeping classified documents. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Independent, and Newsweek. As Special Prosecutor Jack Smith investigates why former President Donald Trump didn't comply with the subpoena related to classified documents, a new report claims he was warned by Evan Corcoran, his lawyer, about keeping classified documents that had been subpoenaed for return last year. Corcoran reportedly preserved around 50 pages of contemporaneous notes regarding his warning information on how Trump and his valet arranged to have boxes moved between rooms at Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence and how he had advanced knowledge of where Corsarin would be searching for documents Corsarin last June returned around 40 documents he found in the storage room and told the Department of Justice there were no more classified materials on the property the FBI later returned to Mar-a-Lago and seized more than 100 more documents these notes became accessible to prosecutors after a Washington grand jury ruled that Trump might have used Corcoran's legal advice to commit a crime, ending attorney-client privilege in the case. In addition, the National Archives last week reportedly sent Trump a letter detailing materials it possesses showing the former president and his advisors knew the correct declassification process. Those records are being passed on to Smith. In response to recent news and statements made by several former members of his administration, Trump posted on social media a message denying he did anything wrong and pointing out that President Joe Biden is also being
0: investigated over documents he possessed after he served as vice president. Salon.com brings us the anti-Trump narrative. These notes are a big problem for the former president because they show how he and others around him were obstructing the government's attempt to retrieve the documents. It's frankly senseless that they were coordinating to move these boxes around and playing a shell game with the DOJ, considering there was no way they were going to get away with it. The Washington Examiner
1: gives us the pro-Trump narrative. The continuing targeting of Trump over this is ridiculous. Currently, there's another special counsel investigating Biden's possession of classified documents from when he was vice president. And former VP Mike Pence also faced a document controversy. In fact, every president since Reagan has been found to possess classified documents. Yet none of these other former officials are being attacked and investigated like
0: Trump. And we have another nerd narrative from Attaculus. This one predicts there's a 37% chance that any U.S. court will rule that Donald J. Trump is disqualified from holding the presidency before January 20th of 2025. I think Dave Chappelle said it best about this document controversy. You know, he's stolen a lot of things from work before, but the one thing he's never stolen from work is work. Why do they want these documents? Exactly. (laughs) Our final story, the UN claims that climate change caused 2 million deaths and $4.3 trillion in damages in the last 50 years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, Al Jazeera, Outlook India, and Bloomberg. On Monday, the UN's World Meteorological Organization, or WMO, reported that over the last 50 years, nearly 12,000 extreme weather events linked with climate change have killed over 2 million people and racked up more than $4.3 trillion in damages. The report said that over 90% of the deaths occurred in developing countries, with WMO chief Pateri Talas saying, The most vulnerable communities unfortunately bear the brunt of weather, climate, and water-related hazards. While a majority of the deaths occurred in developing nations, as well as a large portion of the economic losses, roughly $1.7 trillion occurred in the developed United States. While the WMO has issued repeated warnings about climate change's extreme weather implications, the agency hopes the report will encourage improvements to early warning systems by 2027. Many of the deaths linked to climate change occur from extreme hot and cold temperatures. Between 2000 and 2019, 9.4% of all global deaths were attributed to extreme weather. Europe has experienced the highest excess deaths per 100,000 people as a result of extreme heat. The WMO acknowledged that improvements have been made to early warning systems. Historically, storms like Cyclone Mocha that devastated Bangladesh and Myanmar last week would have killed tens of thousands of people. Myanmar's military has reported just 145 deaths, though those close to the disaster fear the number is much higher.
1: Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from World 101. World governments agree that something needs to be done about climate change. However, they don't all agree on what actions need to take place. A compromise will need to be reached in several key areas. Carbon taxes, the capping, and trading of private sector greenhouse gas emissions, clean energy standards, international agreements, adaptation policies, tech investments, and financial risks. Critical policy decisions in these areas that address the necessary changes To reverse climate change and the appetite of society will be the key to saving our planet or shutting the door to the possibility of change
0: npr online news brings us the establishment critical narrative in the u.s extreme heat is the number one killer of americans impoverished people and people of color are often the victims they are more likely to work and live in the more populous urban areas with limited means for cooling themselves Globally, marginalized populations like indigenous people and poor people face the same challenges. Soaring temps will exacerbate health challenges that pregnant women and other vulnerable populations face unless the world's governments step up and use what little time is remaining to reduce emissions and upgrade critical infrastructure to provide adequate protection. The international community's response has been inadequate to date. Narrative C comes from Financial
1: Times. It's easy to dismiss any extreme weather event as a consequence of climate change. But in reality, they're usually influenced by a myriad of factors that have nothing to do with it. More research is needed before we can establish any direct causal link between the two.
0: And wrapping up the show with another nerd narrative from Metaculus, The community predicts that there's an 85% chance that there will be at least 2 degrees Celsius of global warming by the year 2100.
1: Bum, bum,
0: bum, bum, Thanks for listening to the
1: Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023.
0: Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ.
1: For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace. I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.